Welcome to The World Made Easy, the podcast that explains current events in international relations and development. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Barbara Evans, who holds the chair in Public Health Engineering in the School of Civil Engineering at the University of Leeds, and is an expert on sanitation, hygiene and water services in the Global South. We talked about sanitation development, political economy, and why you should be passionate about faecal sludge management. You used to work for, well, what do you call it? Mott McDonald's? Uh, Mott McDonald's. So it is called Mott McDonald's now. When I joined, it was a small company called Seren McDonald's Partners. So it used to be like a part now. It's very big. But when I started, it was about 250 people. But when you were an engineer with them, you used to work in Sudan, Pakistan and India. Yeah. And so what, what drew you to working in those parts of the world? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I chose to go and work with them or I applied for a job with them and Actually, I had a choice because I had a few job offers. So I went to work with them because they worked in international development kind of context. And the reason why I wanted to do that was because when I was doing my engineering degree, I was studying to be a civil engineer and it was fine. But then I had a, I took a class called Tropical Public Health Engineering and it's a slightly old fashioned name now, but basically it was public health. So what I do now, the, the connection between engineering the environment, people having a healthier life, and then the knock-on effects of that into kind of societal development and how, how fundamental that is to, well, to equity, to justice, all of those things. So I knew that was the kind of thing I wanted to do. So I deliberately chose an engineering company that did international work. And then in my first year, actually the very first posting that I had was Sudan, and that was an emergency situation. So there'd been big floods, and the company had previously built some irrigation systems in northern uh, Sudan along the river, along the, the Nile, and they got damaged in the floods. So they wanted, they had some engineers out there doing various projects, but they wanted some young engineers to go and do some of the local work. So I said, yeah, I'm happy to go. So it was kind of, it was a combination of being in a place where the job came up and being willing to say yes, even though I didn't really know what I was doing. And I have to say, I look back on it now and I really didn't know what I was doing. You know, was- Straight out of university, straight into global engineering oh. must be quite a jump really yeah it was and you know it's that awful thing that when you're young you kind of get through it somehow I mean I was 22 I knew exactly nothing about anything really and then I sort of ended up you know flying to Khartoum and then we were given a Land Rover and essentially told we'll drive north for four hours and you'll come to a place called Shendi and that's and then go to the office of the Agricultural Production Corporation and let them know that you've arrived and they'll tell you what to do you know it was like really you had to kind of have it was like a leap of faith and and you know i wouldn't be able to do it now that's the weird thing about it but i i had that sort of well partly i had no choice right you just like right here we are we have to do this now we have to go and do this job and i learned loads i mean i i worked with you know young engineers and technicians we were mostly doing survey work so we were setting out big sections of canal that then were being manually reconstructed by lots of farmers who growing you know who lived on these agricultural irrigated land and they were really, really desperate that the canals would be repaired so that they could get water, so they could plant their crops. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those classic things where there was no sense at all that we were in charge. We were we were learning all the time from other people, although we didn't know it at the time, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and so then how long after that did you then do your master's? Did that sort of spur you to want to do development studies 
was the yeah thing. no exactly so I, I I did that job and then I worked in Pakistan and then eventually I the third international posting that I had was in South India in what was then Madras now Chennai and that was a really interesting job it was uh there'd been big floods in Chennai as well and um we were doing a sort of master plan for flood alleviation and I had a really interesting job, which was to go and do a sort of inventory of all the existing sewerage and drainage in the city. So it was me and two or three local engineers, and we kind of worked as a team. We were very junior, unimportant people. And we inventoried everything. And the way to do it, because there was no data and no information, we actually walked you know, down every street, looking in every manhole cover. We went and did visual inspections, breathing apparatus, that kind of thing. And we ended up doing this big inventory of all the infrastructure and we wrote a big report, we made a flashy map, and at one point, the donor agency and the government agency were there, and we as the consultants presented all the work we've been doing. A lot of the work was hydraulic modelling, very advanced stuff that colleagues of mine have been working on, but one of the things we presented was this kind of asset review, and it essentially revealed that loads and loads of the assets had either never been built or had been built and then fallen into disrepair, which is something everybody knows happens, so that's a kind of it's a symptom of governance issues and, you know, corruption and all of those things. And that's not a critique of the Indian government. That's just a kind of thing that happens, right? But what what really shocked me, because in my innocence at that time, I thought, well, if we have this data, then we can fix this problem. And what I realized very quickly was actually there were lots of people in the room, including some of the people from the donor agency, who genuinely didn't want anybody to state that information and that was when the kind of light bulb went on in my head and I realized oh it's not just about technocratic you know if we have the right information if we make the right plan we can solve the problem it was when I really realized how incredibly intensely political engineering is well development is you know even decisions about how you manage drainage turn out to be all about politics and I thought I never want to be in this situation again where I'm being told to answer a question but I'm not actually being told to answer that question. I'm being told not to answer the question. And I just thought, I don't want to be on this end of the equation ever again. I want to be on the other end of the equation asking the question. And I realized that I needed like a whole additional bit of education in order to do that. So, yeah, I decided to do my MSc. And to their credit, Mark MacDonald gave me a scholarship to do it. So they paid for me to go to LSE and do my my master's in development studies when you first think of engineering the first the first thing that doesn't come to my mind is politics i mean you think of it as a very sort of excuse me for the pun but sanitized and it's facts figures so how did re- this coming to this realization that actually everything that you're doing is very political how, how did that inform your engineering practice or your, your your way of working in this field yeah no it's a really good question well i mean fundamentally a re- I mean, it's one of the, well, so lots of things have happened to me since. I mean, afterwards, I went to work for a funding agency, and then I worked as a consultant, independent consultant for a while, and then for the last 10 years, I've worked at the university. And fundamentally, it changed the way I conceived of engineering, because as you rightly say, I think all of us, and particularly young engineers, are often trained to think that, you know, sort of everything is neutral, you know, data is neutral, information is neutral. And what I've come to realize is that is never true. The power lies in who's asking the questions, who's defining the question that needs to be asked. So what I find now is that I question everything. I look at contracts. I mean, even in the UK, when I listen to news and somebody says something like, well, I'll give you a good example. So we talk a lot about the cost of the railway. Oh, the railway is very expensive. You know, we can't afford to do the needed maintenance on the railway. 
but we can afford to do needed maintenance on the road. And the question about whether we maintain the roads and the railways, and whether we subsidise people's use of those, has got nothing to do with the goodness or badness of the technical bit of work you've done. That That's all a policy decision. So what I've kind of basically learned is that all of engineering has to be placed within an understanding of the political economy of what you're trying to do. And that's particularly true when you have scarce resources and you're trying to make very difficult trade-off decisions. You know, what's the best thing to invest in? So one of the areas that I work in a lot is public health. And, you know, if you're trying to persuade people to invest in a sanitation program, you know, we've got to really help people to access toilets. It's been put in a box which is called infrastructure. And one of the things that I spend a lot of time doing is, well, if we put it in the box marked health, we can really begin to see its value. So if we see people being able to access and use a really effective toilet that's working well, so we get all the human waste, out, the kind of poisonous stuff out of the environment, we could see that as a, as a saving in terms of the health sector. Once we start to put things in those political economy boxes, I think we can make better decisions. Because ultimately, you need to convince the people who have the power to make those choices. And the only way you can do that is if you reframe the data. It, exactly. And, and and also kind of frame things in ways that fit within existing systems. I mean, over the years, I've also learned that you can't change everything. So you do need to sort of say, well, all right, so if we, ha- if we understand a certain thing, then let's try and fit what we're doing into that existing system. And that's one, you know, that's hard work. And that's always the hard work of, I'm going to use the term development, but I'm just going to quickly just go off on a side thing for a moment and say when I say development I kind of think about it in the context of anywhere in the world we're always doing development you know wherever we are it's not about developing countries and developed countries that's I don't find that a useful distinction I would say everywhere when you make decisions about investing in infrastructure or services you're making decisions about developing the way society works you know moving on from where we are now to somewhere else And, you know, what I've come to see is that you have to make those decisions, well, ideally as transparently as possible with all the trade-offs as much as they can be, you know, out out in the open on the table so that you can say, fine, this isn't a perfect decision, but it's the least bad or preferably the best thing we can do in the circumstances. I think definitely when we think of development, we have this image of like a charity advert and we think of that and... And yeah, everywhere needs to develop. So how do we define development then? What what do you think, for example, like what development needs to happen in the UK? What, yeah, I mean, what? well, that's a great example. I mean, look at look at equity in the UK. You know, we, you know, the development industry, you know, swans around the world talking about, oh, you know, it's terrible, all these left behind people. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know, look at the UK. People are being actively left behind. I mean, you could argue that against many of the sort of indicators of a modern civilized society you know we're going backwards in this country in many cases so i think it's really important and i mean one really positive thing that i think has happened is that there i mean it's not by any means perfect but there is increasingly i think a recognition that that sort of charitable model is outmoded and outdated and we still struggle with it a little bit because i think people people want to do good things and want to help but i think What's really important is, I mean, if I'm not working in my own country, but, you know, if I'm working with colleagues from another place or if I'm in a, you know, working with a local government somewhere, wherever it might be, you know, I think it's really important to be mindful that you are all you can do as an outsider is contribute ideas and information, maybe bring some experience from somewhere else to try and inform that kind of conversation about where do we want to go? 
what's the most effective way we can get where we want to go? To what extent can we do that in ways which brings everybody along uh, with us? You know, and I think I'd like to think that the sort of old discourse of the sort of you know the north extending support is is fizzling out. I hope more quickly, really, and we are actually finally able to talk properly about the fact that we're all all over the world we're all in this kind of like puzzle about what where do we want to go you know and we're doing it in in a situation where there's these increasing shocks so climate change is a long-run shock that we have to work within and now covid shows us but you know we've, we've got to now think about everything we do in the context of covid i mean on that you know we've just written a review paper arguing covid What's the single most effective intervention that everybody talked about right from the beginning? Hand washing. So, right, fine, we have to make sure everyone does hand washing. How are we going to achieve that when we've got, you know, nearly two billion people don't have piped water at supply at home? And so, you know, all of a sudden, what I do, public health engineering wash, we have to reframe it again to say, well, what's the least bad thing we can now do to try and get as many people as possible safely able to do this basic thing that will protect them from a new threat, which is COVID? You mentioned wash. Yeah. And that's one of your that's one of your big passions. So what what is wash? What does that yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a really good question. And what is wash? Well, it's yeah, it's a, it's an invention. It's a shorthand for water supply, sanitation, and hygiene. Um, it's never a sector, so it's quite a tricky thing because lots of people work in wash, but you know, there's never a ministry of wash. Um, uh, the reason why I, we I wish there was a ministry of wash. Well, actually, that would be quite cool. I'd like to be the wash minister. Wouldn't you? I mean, there sometimes are. Um, specialised ministries, but it's a sector that sort of falls in between infrastructure, public works in a lot of places, environment because of sort of wastewater treatment and those sorts of things, but also health. Uh, hygiene is very often with the health sector. So it's it's never a kind of, it's very rarely an institutional sector. But the reason why we club things together is because we've known for a very long time that one of the very effective interventions that can improve health, particularly in places with sort of low infrastructure environments, is if you can get people a reasonably large quantity of water supply reliably available every day. The quality matters slightly less than I think many people think, but quality does matter. So obviously you don't want it to be full of arsenic, for example, or fluoride or you know anything nasty, and preferably not full of cholera, or definitely not full of cholera. You want people to have decent toilets so that they can do two things. One is safely relieve themselves, so you protect women, and also you don't have a lot of the sort of gentle urinary tract infections that are associated with not being able to defecate and urinate when you need to, but also so that you can get human crap basically out of the environment because that's a really horrible poisonous thing and then the third thing you need is to change or influence people's behavior so you get critical hand washing and we know that that package of interventions taken together has a really big effect on quality of life and health uh, the problem that we have is as i say that not, they're, they're all very different so they're never really delivered very effectively as a package they're delivered by lots of other people but i work in wash and so one of the things that i'm doing quite a lot is trying to coordinate you know investments in infrastructure with investments in behavior change with investments into service management so you know the operation of toilets the taking away of human waste all those things so it's a funny thing wash it's a kind of non-sector sector yeah and so you talk about like two billion people who don't who can't wash their hands so what are the consequences of, of not having these wash facilities and this wash infrastructure? Well, you know, this is the thing that I find. I mean, I do actually get quite disheartened sometimes. It's like you just have to put yourself in the position. Imagine waking up in the morning and, first of all, you can't just go to the toilet. You've got to go out of the house to, get to relieve yourself. 
And unless you're really lucky and you live, you know, in a very isolated place with lovely trees all around, you're going to have to go quite a long way to do that. Um, otherwise, you're going to be doing it in public. So that's one thing. Second thing is you can't cook breakfast or start the day or clean the house or wash the clothes or, you know, all the things that you'll, you know, get yourself ready for school unless somebody walks to the water supply, which isn't in the house. So you have to walk somewhere to get water and water's really heavy. So 10 litres of water, a bucket of water, a litre of water weighs a kilo, 10 litres of water weighs 10 kilos, that's a bucket. You've got to carry it back from somewhere. 10 litres of water is not enough. That's half of the absolute minimum amount of water that somebody needs really to get through a normal day. And realistically, you need a lot more than that. I mean, in, in the West, you know, we generally are using 100 to 200 litres per capita. And then... Because of all of that, you don't use water for all of the sort of what you might think of as the luxury activities, washing your face when it's hot, washing your hands every time you've been to the toilet, all of those things. So all of that maps up. And the thing we tend to say is all of that adds up and results in people getting diarrheal disease and babies dying and all of those things, which is true and it's really terrible. But for me, I think it's more shocking that we live in a world where we expect people to live with that massive burden of labour and stress every day. And it's a burden and a stress which, you know, disproportionately falls on women, very often falls on young girls, keeps young girls out of school. If you don't have a decent toilet and you're a teenage girl just starting to menstruate, can you imagine what life would be like? Can you imagine trying to manage that? without, you know, a safe, secure toilet at home and water at home to clean yourself and clean your cloths and all of that. So for me, it's just extraordinary, you know, that we have these massive numbers of people that even though we're making a lot of progress, we are making a lot of progress, but just until everybody has running water at home and a decent toilet at home, we're just expecting you to live in the most horrendous, draining drudgery. And that makes it really hard for people to reach their full potential for children to stay in school for people to succeed and excel it's all well and good having these facilities but then you need to then manage the sewage afterwards yeah. your other your other big passion is fecal sludge management yeah um, yeah what does that mean because it does yeah. not sound like the thing normally that people would get very passionate about but you no 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 that's that's true and again why don't we get passionate about it well so that's the other thing that's interesting about being an engineer so really really great great engineering particularly civil engineering, is completely invisible. And so, you know, growing up in the UK, for example, I don't think anybody really thinks about it. But every day we all use the toilet, you know, whatever, once, te two times, ten times, whatever it might be. We flush the toilet and the, it goes away and we don't even think about it anymore. And underneath the ground, there's this incredible, I mean, you know, there's technological arguments, you know, but basically there's a system which moves all that human crap away from where you are safely without it smelling, takes it to a place, processes it beautifully, and then discharges it. And we can all have esoteric arguments about, you know, the exact quality of how that's managed, but there is a system. Now, in rapidly growing cities, which don't have huge funds for investment, what happens is people arrive, there's not very good planning, so people build, rather than, there's no flush toilets, there's no pipes, so people build what you might think of as a rural toilet, a hole in the ground, essentially, and it fills up. And in the absence of any other system, you pay someone, a market springs up for a group of people, usually very disadvantaged people, whose service is to come to your house and dig out all that fresh human shit every six months or a year or whatever it is, 
and they'll carry it away in a handcart and they will dump it somewhere. So not only are they living a terrible life, they're also contaminating your house while they're emptying the toilet and then they're tipping all the waste into the nearest drain or whatever where your animals might be roaming about, you might be practicing agriculture. So all of that results in lots of sickness and unpleasantness. So faecal sludge management is a sort of catch-all term for can we get cities to think through what are the services that we need to provide, how do we support and regulate people that work in this industry, if you want to call it an industry, and how do we get hold of a system where we're moving all of that human waste away from people. And then finally, complicatedly, human waste is full of loads of really great things that we actually want. It's full of nitrogen and phosphorus, which are really good for agriculture, and it's full of carbon, which is a good source of energy. So ideally, we want to manage all of that and process all of that waste in ways that means we can maximise the, the reuse of the, of the nutrition. So faecal sludge management requires you to build infrastructure or run services and employ people and regulate and manage and test and maintain. You know, it's like it's this sort of whole system of managing. And the problem is that we tend to underestimate how hard it is because if you're in a place where it's done well, you don't see it at all. That's the weird thing about being a good engineer, actually, especially sanitation. So faecal sludge. I mean, water supply, I think people still think about it a bit because you sort of actively enjoy drinking water or drawing water from the tap. But I don't think anyone gets a big thrill over flushing their toilet. You know what I mean? Well, because it's that throwaway culture of, well, it's not my responsibility anymore. But obviously there are people who then have to deal with it and have to process it. And in this country, it's, you know, we have wonderful systems and all that. But in other countries, there is literally a person who has to deal with it. And I don't think about that enough. No. I mean, we've just done some really interesting research, actually, in Bangladesh. There is increasingly research sort of really exploring the quality of life, people that work in the business. And in some countries, for example, there's quite a sort of strong connection between, I'm going to use the word caste, but I don't mean it in the sense of necessarily Indian caste, but essentially groups of people who, for whatever reason, in a, in a particular place are disadvantaged or considered to be in a disadvantaged position who end up doing these truly horrible jobs. And then trying to work out how to support them and protect them without just putting them out of a job, that's a huge, you know, important question that we're still just beginning to grapple with, really. The other big topic that's on everyone's minds at the moment is the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. And so where does water sanitation and climate change intersect and interact? So how is this changing the way that we deal with development and water development? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So the obvious thing that everyone always thinks about is we need to use less water. I mean, you know, lots of places will be water scarce, and that's true, but there is quite a lot of work on that. So the thing that actually interests me a lot more is that sanitation and fecal sludge, uh, one of the things that it really suffers from a lot is flooding. And that's something that, so one area that's kind of so far been quite neglected, I think, is really trying to understand that if we want sanitation systems to go on working when urban flooding is going to be increasing, we have to think about re-engineering systems and certainly managing them in a more active way. We also need drainage that works much better. I mean, actually, stormwater drainage is a really, really unfashionable engineering topic. And again, one that we don't think about much in this country because by and large, the drainage works quite well. But, you know, if you're in a city with poor quality drainage and you're getting these increasingly intense rainfall events, that's a huge problem. So there's lots of, you know, issues that arise. And what we're increasingly seeing is increasing frequency of very intense rainfall events associated with spikes, for example, in outbreaks of cholera. Because what an intense rainfall event does is all these pit latrines and tanks which are lying around with human waste in them 
get flooded out in a flood event, and then you've got rivers of human waste everywhere, sort of which everyone gets contaminated with, right? So that's one inter- inter- interaction. The flip side of it also is that sanitation is also a source of greenhouse gases. So if you're not managing your sanitation systems really well, and you end up with lots of human waste stuck in anaerobic pits and tanks or treatment processes not being managed really well, you get a lot of methane, but also nitrous oxide emissions. So one of the things we're working on is estimating the total attributable portion of greenhouse gases from sanitation. And we think the IPCC are probably significantly underestimating it. So that's really important too. You know, that's a good reason to try and improve and invest and have better systems because we want to try and reduce that as much as we can. So if this is being underestimated, then what's the way forward with, with dealing with this issue? What What is your field doing to sort of tackle these issues? Yeah, great question. Not enough, never enough, never enough. Uh, one thing we're doing right now is just trying to pull all the data together so we can estimate with some confidence. So we've got quite a lot of work going on in a bunch of centres, not just my own group, but many people working on trying to estimate what these emissions might look like, but also under what circumstances do you get the least bad performance? You know, so what types of systems perform the best? Spoiler, the answer is actively managing and moving things through the process as quickly as possible is the answer. I mean, actually, one of the things that's most frustrating for me is that the answer to nearly every question in WASH is spend more money on operations and maintenance, pay your maintenance and operations staff more. And that, again, is linked back to urban governance, usually sort of municipalities actually, you know, having the resources and the ability to run their systems better. So that's slightly off topic from what you're asking me. But I suppose one of the things that we're trying to do is provide as much information as we can that enables us to make the case for governments to spend that money running the systems better and investing in new systems in some cases. I'm quite a big incrementalist myself. I don't think we can change everything overnight, but even with the systems we have today, we could be doing so much better than we are just by managing them more actively and being a bit more I guess it comes down to as well that you just need the funding for it and you just need governments to invest. And if governments started to invest more seriously into these systems then a lot of change could happen overnight just with a just yeah. the things we're doing now absolutely i mean one of the things one of the problems with things like water and sanitation and there are other lots of corollaries of this in development is that mostly it's not about big shiny things it's mostly about kind of small domestic um improvements or operations and maintenance all these kind of like low level things which are not politically very attractive so one of the hardest things is to kind of sell the idea to politicians that having a clean city is a good idea or it's worth investing in cleaning the drains out before the monsoon comes and that could be good for everyone's health and it will make the systems work better it's kind of you know generally i mean i always use the corollary that i think we're tri- it's like it's like you know yourself at home so anybody who owns a house you know you sit in your house and you look at your kitchen and your kitchen looks a bit tatty and your cupboards are all a bit broken and everything's a bit you know bleh. And you think, well, what I could do is spend, you know, the next 20 weekends, you know, taking all the cupboard doors off, sanding them down and painting them. And I could, you know, fix this and do that. Or if you can afford it, do you just buy a new kitchen? And somehow buying the new kitchen is more satisfying and more sort of, a, you know, gets things done more quickly. And, and, and I think there is a corollary of that in development. It's like fixing the sort of underlying ongoing management question is sort of hard and exhausting and every little thing is a kind of bit of a push and so I think we sometimes sacrifice that kind of development work for the building of shiny new things 
And that's not a critique of any particular set of stakeholders. I think we all tend to have that tendency. Everybody, funding agencies, academics, government administrators, householders, everybody. But actually, I think we need to get better at the kind of boring, ongoing stuff. And and in development discourse, generally, we have to make that more appealing and more important. And we have to, you know, we have to start championing politics that champions that, you know. Raising good local taxes, getting people to, I don't know, all of those things. I don't know if I'm really making sense, but it's kind of like, the problem is it's like making the boring exciting. Well, yeah, and as you say, if the best sanitation systems are not seen, and if development is so political, then of course no government is going to want to invest in something that no one can look at and and Mm. think is amazing. And so it's it's about how how do we change that narrative? And I feel like listening to more people like you and having these conversations that actually these things that we don't see are so important. Yeah, yeah. And there are corollaries that we know. I mean, the same problem comes up in medicine. I mean, you know, it's so much easier to get, you know, money and interest in, you know, a big hospital than it is in a sort of public health effort to get people walking more. You know, you know what I mean? It's like all the things which are sort of low level, but are actually really important development stories. But we don't actually learn the theory of that very much. And we don't sort of put that in the foreground so no I do think I do think it's important to have people thinking about it I also think you know there's an interesting tension between needing to completely shift paradigms and making incremental approaches so you know one of the things that's happened in our sector is that Bill Gates became very interested 15 years ago it's very good he's put loads of money into the sector but one of the things he did was he ran this huge program called reinvent the toilet And, and the premise is we need a totally new bit of tech that will kind of make sanitation work because it doesn't work. Now, that's not actually a bad thing. I don't have any problem with the need for technical innovation. But weirdly, the fact that that's such a high-profile story, you know, I mean, he's basically more money's been sort of spent on the reinvent the toilet sort of space than many other spaces. And it's very high, highly visible because the Gates Foundation are really good at making their work very visible. It's kind of created the impression that we can't solve the problem with the tech we already have. And that's that's unfortunate, because although it is true that we could have better tech and developing better tech is a good thing to do, it's not true that we couldn't solve the problem with the tech we have today. And we need both things to be happening. We need us, We need to be running the systems we have much better and maybe innovating as well. And that's another very classic um, tension in development, I think the extent to which it's good to build on what you already have compared to needing a radical transformation. I guess that's the psychological side of development as well, because, you know, if someone says to you, well, what are you doing about the problem? It's very easy to point at the new toilet you create and say, well, this is what we're doing. Then it is to say, well, we're incrementally increasing funding in our current system. Yeah. And I, I, we all struggle with it. I mean, you know, I, I'm an academic and I'm under pressure to, you know, publish high profile papers. And, you know, if I write another paper saying it would be really good to spend some more money on operations and maintenance, I'm very unlikely to get it in the Lancet. You know, it's like kind of, you know, it's really hard. We all have this incentive exactly for sort of sparkling new things. And, and it's not that that isn't important. It's just that it's not the only stuff we have to do. We have, we have to all be sort of pushing along and it's not, it's not in everybody's gift to reinvent the toilet. You know, many of us need to need to be doing the sort of nuts and bolts work. 
maybe sounding a bit defensive now, but you know, it's true. I mean, I have a big project running at the moment, very kind of unglamorous project where we're literally, we just designed a standard way of reporting the costs of urban sanitation systems and we're just collecting data. So we can answer a question to which we do not know the answer, which is how much would it cost to give everybody a safely managed working sanitation system in the world? We don't even know the answer to that question. That's a very important question. It is important, but I'm very unlikely to win a Nobel Prize for answering it. So, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, all these little pieces that we need that just need to be constantly, you know, we need to be assembling evidence and data and information. If you take away one thing, it's that the the unseen things are the most important. It's the behind the scenes. Yeah, behind the scenes stuff really matters for development. I think that's true. Yeah. So you're obviously a very busy professor of everything, it seems. So where can we find out more about you and your work? And Yeah, so, uh, well, we have a website um, at the University of Leeds. I mean, if you Google me, uh, you can find my website. We also have a, a WASH blog at the University of Leeds, which I think is www.washblog.org, possibly. I mean, there's loads, loads and loads of really cool stuff. There's some brilliant people working around the world. You know, I, I would love to give a real shout out to, well, enormous numbers of people doing cool work and um, sort of out in the real world. I just sit in a British university and pontificate really now. So, um, you know, it's, it's what's really encouraging to me is that there is a huge upsurge in sort of innovative young thinking really coming out of domestic universities where the work needs to be done you know so I've got some amazing colleagues in India incredible young African academics Um, and I think that's something that is very positive to me is the sort of suddenly we are finally seeing this really sort of critical mass of investment in young thinkers all over the world which has been quite a problem I think historically because there just hasn't been enough money spent on training and resourcing and helping people to develop careers and that's really shifting the balance now, which is great. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Good luck with the faecal sludge. <laughs> thank you very much. Well, we all need that, let's face it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The World Made Easy. For more information on water sanitation and Professor Evans, follow the links in the show notes. For more podcasts from SOAS Radio, visit soasradio.org. Thanks for listening. And see you next time for another episode of The World Made Easy.